and there's already a bit yellow blood in my in my veins. Already had a crazy 18 months here, but it just keeps on uh, keeps on going. Welcome to All in Yellow, the official Norwich City podcast. Tukey! Sensational! Who else? Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the All in Yellow podcast. Now, today's guest is someone Norwich City fans are most likely going to recognise the voice of. He is the voice of BBC Radio Norfolk. It's none other than Chris Gorham. And Dan, you know him fairly well, don't you? Well, we all know him fairly well. He really is the voice of Norwich City and he's brought us so many iconic memories over the years. I'm really looking forward to chatting to him about his time as a broadcaster and his highlights of following the Canaries. Yes, and there aren't many fans who know more about Norwich than he does. No, he's going to put us on the spot here and I hope it doesn't show us up. <laughs> but before we get started, make sure you subscribe to the All in Yellow podcast as we aim to bring the best Norwich City insight out there to you. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search All in Yellow and we're also on the Norwich City YouTube channel if if you prefer your podcast in visual form. Well then, Alice, here we go. It's our next guest. It is none other than the voice of Norwich City himself, Mr. Chris Gorham. So, Chris Gorham, welcome to the All in Yellow podcast. It is a pleasure having you with us today here at Carrow Road. Let's start at the very beginning. What are your earliest memories of being an Norwich fan? My goodness, uh, it's been a long time. Um, we're going back... 30 plus years now. Um, you don't my, look old I know. <laughs> I started young. Now, my, my dad um, and my granddad and generations before are all Norwich City fans. And I think my dad was so keen to get me uh, in, involved in all things yellow and green. He brought me to my first game here at Carrow Road in 1986 uh, when I was four, four and a half years old. And it was a midweek game that went into extra time in the, in the full Members' Cup against Coventry. So... That was that, that. was one for the purists from the very start. And I think it was probably, well, if he sits through this, he'll, he'll sit through anything. Did you enjoy and it? I, as far as I remember, I did. I'm told I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest and say I can't remember anything about it whatsoever other than I think my dad was delighted to be able to take me. And um, from then on, I just wanted to go and watch Norwich as often as possible. So, yeah, I was I was indoctrinated very, very early in life uh, to be a Norwich City fan. It must have gone well then. And, and <laughs> did, did you want to play football as well as watch it? I wanted to, but I'm, I haven't got the necessary talent unfortunately <laughs> um, I loved football growing up I was a big Norwich fan played football at school as often as possible but I wasn't even good enough to get in the school team oh. unfortunately I know I know must have been competitive it, um well, n none of the others made it either. So <laughs> I was hoping that it'll be all right because all these lads will go on and they'll play for Norwich or they'll play for England or something, but they didn't. So <laughs> I've, I, I had to be honest from quite an early age that uh, playing professional football was never going to be the career for me. So I had to find other ways of making a, or, or stealing a living out of football. And, and yeah. that's what I've done. <laughs> Such a nice thing though, you know, it's very typical of the Norwich City story is it's a family connection and it's brought you into the game and I mean, the times that we're experiencing at the moment shows us how important football is and that connection, you know, that, that's so important, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And I think it's something that you, you sort of take for granted to begin with. But it's as you get older, in my case, you have children yourself and you get to take them to their first game and you start to realise what football is really all about. And I think I remember doing the, the breakfast show on, on Radio Norfolk the morning after Norwich had been promoted to the Premier League under, under Paul Lambert. That was when they won at Portsmouth and uh, we actually did the programme from a BBC studio in Southampton the next morning because we, we needed to be sort of where, as close to the action as possible. And the, the messages we were getting from, from listeners that morning 
yes, they were pleased that Norwich had got promoted, but the tone of the messages was so much about, oh, I wish my dad had been here to see this or my granddad or or, or those that were watching and, and saying, I'm just glad I got to sit and watch it with my with my dad and, or granddad or grandma, whoever it was. And I think we saw the same for the Wembley playoff final, didn't we? For, for a lot of people, it was the first time, not just the first time they'd seen Norwich play at Wembley, but to be able to share that with their, their relatives. That's what made it mean so much to so many people. We, we've always said it, and I think at the times we're living in at the moment have, have underlined it, that when you're a football supporter or when you work in football, yes, what happens on the pitch is important, but it's only part of the story. It's everything that goes around it, the full match day routine that we're, we're sadly missing at the moment. I think that's that's what you really appreciate if you've got into football because of your family. Yeah, we really are missing it, aren't we? It's such a shame how things are going at the minute. But but what kind of like made you initially want to become a commentator and get into, into sports journalism? Um, that's a difficult question. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it was when I was growing up, I'm I the right generation for when and I'm not sure if I should say this with you here Alice with, with Sky coming in <laughs> and taking all the football off off the terrestrial TV because yeah. when I was growing up I we, can't take credit no, for that exactly. it was actually before football before 1992 <laughs> exactly Alice, yeah. this is true, yeah. this is true. so <laughs> I, I, I was 10 in 1992 so I started watching I was watching born in it. 1992 <laughs> oh, so I definitely can't blame you for it then no so I started in started watching what you would call old fashioned football where you'd get one game a week on TV if you were lucky and I always watched it and then top flight football sort of disappeared from my TV, unless it was Italian football, which I really got into because that's all we could watch in, in the mid-90s. But it meant that when you wanted to follow Norwich City in particular or, or just any uh, any football in the Premier League when it first started, I tended to listen to a lot of it on the radio. So I don't know whether that's where some sort of seed was sown subconsciously that, oh, actually, there are people who get paid to talk about football. You don't even have to look that good because it's on the radio. <laughs> it's, it's the perfect down. job. We've got you on a camera now, Chris. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I thought maybe that's where the, the, the seed was first sown. I'm not sure. But um, there's no other job that I've really wanted to do um, growing up. I was one of those maybe quite annoying people that knew quite early what I wanted to do and sort of set about the quickest way and the best way of, of getting there. And um, What was that way then? City College, was it? Am I right? It was, yeah. I went to City College and did a, a media course there, but it was alongside doing work experience at Radio Norfolk. And I think a lot of people in broadcasting start like this, where you, you literally turn up and offer to work for nothing. And that you, you get to make the teas for the presenters on a Saturday afternoon. If they like you enough, they might send you out to somewhere like the Wellesley or or Wroxham to go and cover some local non-league football. But, so that was what that was my first on-air job, was covering Great Yarmouth Town, Wroxham, Distown, in the days when, well, certainly before iPhones and when, when mobile phones were even more unreliable in Norfolk than they are now. So mm-hmm. you, you get thrown in at the deep end. Yeah, completely, <laughs> yeah. I remember doing, having to do one report quite early on from a lay-by somewhere near the Acle Strait because I couldn't get a signal at the ground. I don't know if there's ever been a less glamorous (laughs) spot to do a a report from. On the Acle Strait. (laughs) Exactly. And that's where you start. You sort of learn that it's actually it's it's not very glamorous and it's just a way of getting your report on the air somehow. And then I sort of hung around Radio Norfolk for long enough, um, left college and worked my way through doing various jobs at the radio station until they let me have a go at football commentary, which is what I always wanted to do. And when did that big break come and how did it come about? Um, I got to share a commentary with uh, with great Roy Waller, who did the job for so many years. And I, I any if you're a Norwich fan of, of our generation, you absolutely grew up listening to, to Roy on the radio. So I was lucky enough to work with him. The first time I had a go at commentating was in a, a pre-season friendly. Again, it's all glamour. When Norwich, in the Brian Hamilton years, played uh, a Dutch team called Heerenveen. 
Very here at Carrow Road. I mean, yeah, that's, the, yeah, sounds that's it. What, it's exactly what you dream of, <laughs> isn't it? I can't believe I remember the game. <laughs> well, the, re the reason you might remember it is because there was a massive thunderstorm and the players actually got taken off because it was only a pre-season friendly and they, it didn't matter. They took the players off um, until the thunderstorm had cleared. But that was about five minutes into my first ever stint of football commentary. So my, my first ever stint of football commentary, I was just kind of finding my way with it and then there was suddenly no football to come and take on how did you feel that time? <laughs> i remember looking at roy who was sat next to me and him just sitting back in his seat and looking at me and thinking <laughs> good go. luck with this Over one. To you, <laughs> yeah. i remember that game the water was flying up from the yeah. drains and all sorts it was and it was one of those and it was in the summer being pre-season so it's just one of those freak storms you get that is is over as quickly as it started and the game did resume and and i don't remember what the score was in the end because that's the only thing i remember from it so yeah i think you i've learned quite quickly that no matter how much preparation you do, no matter how much you <laughs> do your research on the players, there's always something that you haven't prepared for at all that can, yeah. can knock you off course. Did you look back on it and, and kind of were happy that it had happened because of the experience <laughs> or was it well, a, a no-go? Well, it's, it's turned into, I think, again, what, what you pick up from, from radio and it's, it's a bit like one thing that, being on the radio has got in common with being a stand-up comedian is if something in your life happens that's not very glamorous or the joke's on you, actually you don't mind too much because you think, oh, this is good on-air material. I can talk about this. <laughs> yeah, great so it's, it is. It's a bit like if the um, we had an incident uh, recently when, or a couple of seasons ago, when uh, we got stuck in a massive queue of traffic on the Humber Bridge on the way to a game where, where Norwich were playing Hull. And I had to get out and walk some of the way because it looked like we're not going to we're not going to get there. So my colleague Rob um, stayed with the car, and I got out, got all the radio equipment, and started walking over the Humber Bridge on foot. And you think this isn't a very pleasant experience, but on the plus side, when we do get on the radio, I've got a great stories to tell. Yes. And, and that's the, so I, I, it's experiences like that, that that stay with you. I guess it goes back to what we were saying a, a moment ago that the football's one side of it, but it's it's everything that goes alongside is as much fun to talk about when, you, when you're on radio. Well, your job sounds like the dream to a, a massive football fan like, like myself. Just You're just having a away day every every, <laughs> every other week. Do you, do you take on the triple takeaway challenge as is customary with my group of friends on an away day? So talk me through that. Oh, God. Well, I, yeah, I won't, I won't name the specific. We'll call them it restaurants. It starts with a McDonald's. It starts with a McDonald's <laughs> breakfast. It's usually a burger outside the ground. Could be a hot dog. And then obviously you have to take a chicken option, a, a well-known chicken chain in the evening as well. That's is that something amazing. you guys do? Uh, yeah. Well, it does sound amazing, but um, you must have quite an exercise regime looking at you, Dan. Yeah, it's gone downhill in, in recent months. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm not that. surprised. No, this is something that um, since Rob and I have been doing the away games together, we, we realized quite early that if you're doing the miles that we do and you're having service station food let's call it at least every couple of weeks it's not it's probably not a good long-term health strategy <laughs> so we we did go through a spell of trying not to eat fast food on away games How now did that go? it's more difficult than you might think because when you stop at a service station what choice have you got you know and and you we tried it we've toyed with the idea of getting one of those good pub guide books and trying to go off the beaten track a little bit and trying to find pubs that do decent food that's a series in that itself well it, yeah a bit like the <laughs> the, the trip you know with, yeah. <laughs> but the, the problem we found with that was following norwich city away is already a long day so when you start adding a little detour in <laughs> you're, you're not getting back till midnight on a saturday it, it's it's not sustainable so we we have to be a bit careful and yes um, you can always find justification for, for having a dirty burger, can't you? Because a good win is an occasion for celebrating. And if Norwich have lost, well, you need something to cheer yourself up. So there's always justification. But we've tended to go, I think, the rise of the drive-through coffee shops and the fact that they sometimes have healthier sandwiches, that's probably 
saved us. <laughs> I yes, would say it's healthier. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's healthier. Yeah, but it's all it's all relative. Yeah, and and how have you found like trying to keep the balance between work and life? Because I know obviously you talk there; it's not as glamorous as some people might think. Even though to others it is is a dream job. How do you kind of manage to keep yourself healthy in a way, and that you still see your family? At week? This obviously takes up your weekends a lot. How, how where do you find that balance? I think it is. It's a really interesting one because. It is a job. I wouldn't. There's no other job I would rather do. Yeah. Definitely, I still would say that. Still getting paid to go and watch Norwich City, even when they're not doing so well, whatever. It's a brilliant job to do, and I know I'm lucky. But I think most things in life is a compromise, isn't it? It's. A, I always say it's a bit like when you're trying to buy a house. If you decide you want a big garden, you might have to not have something else. Or if you decide that you really need a, a big driveway so you can get all your cars off the off the side of the road, then you might not have the garden. And I think it's the same in your working life as well. That, um, yeah, covering football and covering Norwich City is a brilliant job. But it does mean that Saturday nights are pretty much out. Certainly every other Saturday, you're not going to be able to go to go out with your friends or uh, be around for you know, kids' birthday parties that happen at the weekend. Um, you can't have a decent conversation in the office about Strictly Come Dancing or X Factor because Same. you've not seen any of it. <laughs> we will move on to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a few questions. <laughs> yeah. You've just not seen any of it. So, yeah, there's that side of it. But uh, the long and the short of it is that a good proportion of my working days a year are spent watching Norwich City. And it's something, when you've got a job that some people, or a lot of people, thousands of people would willingly pay to do and do pay to do, you just can't complain. You you have to put up with the fact that every bank holiday, every boxing day, you're going to be expected to work. It comes with the territory. And I, I really don't like to even sound like I'm even a little bit complaining about it because I've got nothing to complain about. Yeah, love that. And you, obviously, you said you started along, you know, Roy Waller as a voice that, you know, synonymous with Norwich City, which is now a tag that is yours. You're, you are the voice of Norwich City, Chris, and, and you do a fabulous job and are dearly loved by Norwich fans everywhere. And, uh, you know, I made you really uncomfortable. So I know you're such, <laughs> such, a, he's such a humble guy, but your voice is, yeah. it is the Norwich City of, you know, you said you came in 2002? 2005. 2005 was when, was when I, it was yeah, your own. When I first, when I took over properly. But I think... The first four years of that, you nobody remembers because the first four years of that were nothing really happened. Norwich were mid-table, championship side. And actually, the, the first major event I commentated on was relegation to League One. And I thought, I thought, well, Roy's got out at a good time here, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like Sir Alec Ferguson at Manchester United. He, he knew when to go. And it, it felt like this is... Yeah, you know, this is not the job that I signed up for. We just lost seven-one to Colchester. You know, all these years growing up, listening to Roy commentate at Old Trafford and Anfield, I thought that's never going to be me. But the interesting thing about being a commentator is it almost doesn't matter how good you are or how hard you work. Actually, it's the moments you get to commentate on that people remember. And it is what we've had in the past few years. I mean, the last decade, we've been so lucky, haven't we? You think of the, the Paul Lambert really regime. Yeah. We've had, you know, all those late goals, Mario Vrancic free kicks, Simeon Jackson promotions. We've had Wembley. And when you're able, when you're lucky enough to be able to be there and are, are the way that some people follow moments like that, I think you just have to go with it. And I think those are the... the you need good things to happen and you need memorable moments to happen for people to really latch on to what you're doing as a job. I, because I haven't done that much differently over the years, but I've been both a League One commentator and a Premier League commentator. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with how I do the job. It's all about, I don't know if they realise it, those players on the pitch, they that they take so many careers with them, don't they? It, we're, we're all, our, our careers and everything we do is all in, in their hands. And going back to, to recent years, obviously we had the most incredible time really, or one of the most incredible times in the club's history with the back-to-back -back promotions. What was it like, particularly being a fan, covering that? Uh, it's brilliant. And again, that was when, having got, gone all the way down to League One, when Paul Lambert came in, that was the first time that 
Norwich really got going in my spell as a, as a commentator, where we were going to away games and having all these long trips and we were actually turning up expecting to win. That's not a, <laughs> that's not something you take for granted as a, as a Norwich fan over the years. Um, so to have the promotion from League One was brilliant and then to follow that up and to, to go up again and, and be in the Premier League, uh, it's I think the, the promotion under Daniel Farker a couple of seasons ago came close. But I think in terms of a, an entire package, going from League One into the Premier League and then staying in the Premier League, I'm, I think even Norwich fans who've been going a lot longer than I have would say there haven't been many spells of, of, of being a Norwich fan where it's been as good as it was then or as enjoyable as it was then. It was the late goals, wasn't it? And we talked about this the other week. I had a little chat with you and oh, we're, we're throwing in a couple of late goals this season. We this, are. Good things, <laughs> good things tend to happen yeah. when Norwich believe they can score late on. And, and do you see a bit of a you know similarity between those two spells? I think I do. And I'm. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because I mentioned Sir Alec Ferguson a moment ago and that's what everybody says about his great Manchester United team. Mm, how, exactly. <laughs> how, how they were always lucky because they scored late well hang on no that, that you're allowed to do it a football match is 90 95 minutes sometimes and a goal in the 90th minute counts just as much as one in the second minute doesn't it and I think it's that that ability to keep going and keep going and, and score late in games is is so important it shows a good togetherness in the squad it probably shows how good you are at just grinding down an opposition as well and that you're that good there's only so long they can hold out and eventually a goal is going to come and that's what it's felt like with with Norwich City this season I think without wishing to be arrogant about it I think when you look at the squad Norwich have got it's it looks on paper so much better than most teams in the championship and we saw it here against Wickham and, and Birmingham you can be arrogant about it, it. Is, that, is that all right I don't want to set myself up for a massive fall no. when this is replayed later in the season <laughs> but um, you, you think well at some point one of these players is going to do something that will decide the game and and that's happened a few times recently and, and long may it continue and I think teams in the championship sometimes come to Carrow Road and they park the bus because they know that the best they can hope for is to hold out and not many have managed it so far. That is why fans should never leave before the end. <laughs> oh, absolutely, would never do it. Not even not even a takeaway would lure me out of a football game earlier. But um, I'd like to talk about Paul Lambert, if I may, in that era. You know, that was an incredible three-year period for the club. But for you, obviously, I wouldn't, you know, I'm guessing he wasn't necessarily the most forthcoming character in interviews. What, what, did it make your job difficult? Um, it, not really, because they were winning all the time. Okay. So actually, the, when you do tend to have more difficult chats with managers, in my experience, is when things aren't going so well and you're having to say after the game, well, that didn't go very well, did it? Whereas with Paul Lambert, that wasn't really an issue because he quite quickly turned the tide. They were quite quickly winning games under him. And when they had the odd defeat it would then sound strange to go very Jeremy Paxman on him and start blaming him for it. So actually, I got on pretty well with, with Paul Lambert. In fact, he's the, he's the only Norwich City manager that has um, ever sent me, completely unsolicited, ever sent me a signed photo of himself. Wow. Um, it turned of himself. Of himself Where yeah. did you put it? Well, the <laughs> <laughs> it turned up. It was, it was weird. It must have been the summer after Norwich got promoted to the Premier League. And I was involved in the, the celebrations on the balcony at City Hall. And a one of those, you know, you get those brown envelopes with please do not bend written on. Turned up in my pigeonhole at the BBC a couple of months later. And when I opened it up, there was no letter in it. It was just a photo, just a, a blown up photo of me interviewing Paul Lambert on the balcony at City Hall. And um, he'd written on it. Chris, you've got a face for radio. Best wishes, Paul Lambert. <laughs> so Paul Lambert. <laughs> and there was no explanation, and it was never so mentioned. Talking. And when I saw him, I said, oh, thanks for the picture. And he sort of went, yes. And that, it was never really mentioned again. But I've got that, and I've got that at home. And then, of course, he went and did what he's done now, and it doesn't feel quite right to have it anymore. You know, obviously, you're around these kind of guys, and you speak to them week in, week out. 
as a Norwich fan, at what point did it ever become normal to you? Did, did, or do you still get that buzz? I mean, we, we work at the football club a lot and you have to kind of deaden yourself to the fact that, oh, the, there's, there's the players, you know, that's the job. Do you, how do you feel about it? I think, it? yeah, it's, it depends who the players are. I think for me, I get more like that with the ones that I grew up watching. So we have Brian Gunn commentate with us sometimes who was just the biggest Norwich hero when, when I was growing up it's that era of Norwich players I think it's the players that you first got, who were playing when you first get into football that always have that effect on you so for me it's if you come across Robert Fleck or, or Dale Gordon those are the ones that do still make your heart skip a beat because those are the ones you idolized growing up I think the ones that you that play now you do tend to have a slightly more professional relationship with because you have got to interview them you do have to talk about them on the radio and I think sometimes they get to hear it and so maybe they don't always like everything you've said about them so you, you do have that sort of professional distance now um, that's not to say that you don't admire them and you're not excited if you see Timu Puki out and about do, doing his shopping but for me it's the ones that you your first heroes the ones that you're in you, you really get into when you're a kid they're, they're, no one ever quite comes close to them I think talk about the the kind of professional distance but I guess now more than ever with the emergence of social media and the players are you know tweeting all the time and on Instagram and stuff do you feel like that has actually connected fans more to players in that they might not be quite so starstruck if they they see a player that they might have done say 20 years ago because you feel like you know them more yeah I think it's a I, I still like to think of, of social media as being generally a force for good for, for that reason in that there are there are some players, and actually Norwich have got loads of them. There are players who clearly do do their own social media and do interact genuinely with supporters. And I know it must come with a lot of pressure because, goodness me, I don't know some of the stick that footballers get. I know I couldn't cope with it. But there are those that have a thick enough skin and can brush it off and can interact with Norwich fans and, and do it really well. There are other players who you you get a sense quite quickly that maybe they're not the ones actually pressing send on their own tweets. And okay. I think I think as social media has... Hashtag <laughs> Exactly. I think that's it. I think as social media has become an industry in its own right, players have have used it more to their benefit and you get agents and you get management companies more involved with it but certainly when it first came in I thought it, it was a really useful tool in terms of bringing um, players and, and fans closer together and I think it still does by and large. Do you Chris on your social media I can't believe this for a second but have you ever had anyone pipe up on social media and give you a bit of stick? Yeah all the time uh, well it's not and it's not just social media as well it's um you get emails sometimes because now, of course, you're you're connected all the time, aren't you? And the idea is, well, you should just switch off and concentrate fully on the job at hand. But you can't because these days, when when I first started, and this is going to sound like I'm talking about the black and white days now, but when I first started, you had to wait for somebody to come around with a, a piece of paper with the actual team sheet on for that day. Now you have to you have to be on Twitter because you see it on social media before anything else. So. Whether I feel comfortable with it or not, I don't think I could do the job that I do without being on social media. And yeah, of course you do. I, I don't get anything like it. I mean, the majority of what we get is it's really nice. But as with everybody, you get the odd person that doesn't like what you do or who disagrees with something that you've said. And some some are not backwards in coming forwards. It's not, I've, sometimes it's, it can be more emails that you get that pop up while you're commentating. You see it flash up. It can be really off-putting, but it is... Unfortunately, whether you like it or not, it is part of the job. And when you put yourself out there on the radio, on TV, on the football pitch, you're not going to please all the people all the time. And whereas, oh, what's the best way of saying it? I think if there was somebody on TV or radio that I didn't particularly enjoy watching or listening to, I would just switch it off and I could probably do that without letting them know. Mm. 
not everybody has yeah. <laughs> as you will know I'm sure yeah. you, I'm sure you, you know, we all football get it fans, don't we yeah and obviously football fans are very passionate and, yeah. and sometimes you have to I guess have in the back of your head that you might be saying something that they're not going to like but but do you do you does that stop you from from voicing your opinion if I they, think they I think if well? it's honest I think you you just have to go with it if you're if you're saying something to provoke a reaction then I always would try not to do that yeah. because you you can then cause a few issues for yourself along the way if you can't back it up but I think if you're saying something that you genuinely believe and you're saying it for the right reasons and it upsets a few people or people take it the wrong way I think it's just something you have to live with but it's it's part of life for everybody now isn't it Be, being out there all the time and if you if you do want a job that comes with being on on tv on on the radio not everyone's going to like what you do and sometimes that's really hard but you, you have to you have you have to I just can't imagine like you said, a world where I've watched something I don't really like or I haven't really enjoyed and I thought, right, I need to let that person know because my opinion's that important that yeah. I need to... And, and people sort of think if you're in the, the public eye or, or ear, or in your case, you know, that you've got a ridiculously thick skin and you're not just a, a person and you're reading that comment and thinking, hey, I've put in hours of research here. I've driven the ends of the country and I'm doing my very best. And, you know, 99% of people think, you know, uh, are enjoying it and then that, that the one, one is the one that will stick yeah, with you it, it, you're right yeah because we do we get lots of nice messages as well and, and by and large we're really lucky i think rob would say the same thing the messages we get about the, the coverage that we do is really positive but you're right i don't know what it is whether it's just me or whether it's the human psyche if you get one bit of criticism or one bad one it does tend to stay with you i imagine i imagine rob and this might I've, we've had this chat before about <laughs> rob because rob you know is I think he's a fantastic bloke and I'll embarrass him as well because he turns up at foundation oh. sessions and, you know, he doesn't tell people that he's volunteering to help out with our disability sessions at the club. It's not a radio feature. He, he's seen, he is, he's seen, you know, believes in that community aspect of the club and just actually wants to be a part of it behind the scenes. But he obviously has to play a bit of a character on Canary Call and be a little bit provocative. So I imagine he probably has to develop us even thicker skin because he probably gets the brunt of it. That's it. He, he is the, I think people are more forgiving during a commentary because you you don't know what's going to happen and it is live and, and so you, off the cuff it is it? Yeah. yeah whereas you're right when you're talking straight after the game and everyone knows what the result is that is when passions are running at their at their highest and it's a difficult job that, that rob does because you are there to yes take the calls of all the supporters but also during that you have to counter what the supporters are saying with what the manager thinks or what the opinion is from the club and you have to it's part of the bbc's job and, and rightly so to put both points of view across this is what this fan is saying this is what the manager says about that and actually you've got 27,000 fans here on a match day when, when they can you've got many thousands of other Norwich fans who for whatever reason can't get to the games they're not all going to have the same opinion so there's no way people like to talk about you know the voice of the fans but there's there's no way that any one person can be that and, and Rob's got to juggle all these different opinions you know 27,000 different opinions that have been at Carrow Road that day with what Daniel Farker is saying with what is coming from the boardroom what Stuart Webber is saying and try and get all these opinions across at the same time uh, it's a really difficult job especially at the point of the afternoon where feelings are running as as high as they as they ever do so yeah he's he's learned he's a good he'd be a good juggler if uh, if uh, if uh, if the, the football and the, the phone-ins ever ever stopped we were um speaking to neil adams actually in a recent podcast and he was saying that when he did canary call he felt like every fan that called in thought they were a manager and they'd tell, <laughs> they'd tell him you know what how he should have done things and, and how does that kind of how do you deal with that kind of pressure? i think w w what's where we're lucky uh, and uh, myself and rob are the same here we've got a really good um 
group of people like Neil, I mean, Neil used to do it and of course has gone on to do great things with the club, um, former players that we can all, if there's something we're not sure about or if there's an opinion that we don't feel as if we're qualified to express because we've not played the game, there's always somebody near us who has done and we've got so many great former Norwich players that you can say, look, this is my opinion on it. This is my untrained eye thinks this. What's it like in your experience? And sometimes they'll they'll agree with you and sometimes they don't. So we're so lucky. And we've got so many great former Norwich players who enjoy enough commentating that they they join us for games. So who's, think, who's impressed you out of that field of Norwich City players? Who, who comes along and you think, wow, that's really incisive, yeah. you know? There are so many, actually. They all bring something slightly different to the party, and I think it's great. And we know Darren Eady is just, just brilliant, as, as we know. He's, There's he's, a lot of work here, Yeah, absolutely re regular with the, the NR1. I think it's the it's the players are slightly off the wall as well. Mark Rivers, for example, has become really popular. Yeah. He's, uh, he doesn't live around here anymore, but he's he's come in handy for us because he lives close to a lot of the northern grounds that we go to. And he's got a slightly different take on, on football. And, and he's not uh, somebody who's stayed in the game. He's got another job now, a separate day job away from football. And actually had pretty much stopped thinking about football until we asked him to do the odd game for us. And he'll say quite openly, it was that commentating on a few games in the season that Norwich were promoted under Daniel Farker made him fall in love with football again. And I think it's it's quite... I find it really refreshing to have such a variety of different people because when you're commentating on the same team, the same set of players every week, it can be difficult to come up with new and interesting hot takes, things to say. <laughs> so it's it's quite nice to be able to let somebody else do that um, but week after week. So I think I think Rob does a great job when he's doing the phone-in of just addressing the the questions in the direction of the, the former players who can give us the sort of take that we will never be able to because we've not been out there on the pitch. We've not been in the dressing room and, and these people have and they're, they're so valuable to the, the coverage that we do. Have you worked with many former players where they've started their kind of broadcasting career and you've thought, oh, I don't know why we're giving them a shot and, you know, we'll stick with them and kind of help help them along? Have you I, had any I do way the flattery. Alice asks the tough <laughs> questions. <for her. laughs> well, ultimately, I, I'll be honest and say I haven't because... A lot of the players that we are using now, former players, are people that we know anyway or have interviewed as as players. And you get a good idea for the ones that you think will be comfortable with it and the ones that won't. Trial run. <laughs> yeah, but, but ultimately I think it's all we're asking them to do is talk about football. And it's been their life for 10, 20, 30 years in some cases, more than that. So, yeah, the, the sight of the microphone and the headphones can make, a, make them feel a bit uncomfortable to begin with. But once a game gets going... Actually, you're just asking them to talk about football and they're all comfortable doing it. And they've all had such different experiences. You know, we, we have people like um, like Darren Huckabee and Grant Holt who've been great Norwich City heroes, Darren Eady as well, who do games with us. We have others like Adrian Coots um, and Adrian Forbes as well, who had good spells with the Norwich first team, but who in Adrian Forbes' case had to drop down the divisions to, to really get proper first team football. And they bring such different takes to where Norwich City are. I, I find it fascinating every week listening to their stories. I think that's the, when you've not been a footballer, you never lose that sense of wonder about, you know, speaking to footballers and finding out what really goes on behind the scenes. Do you still get nervous, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Before, I think before every game, I still feel a little bit edgy come, come two o'clock on a Saturday because um, I think it's because you, doesn't matter how many games you've done, you still don't know what's going to happen that afternoon. It's not like learning a script. It's mm -hmm. it's the fact that anything can happen. The, 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 there might be a thunderstorm. The floodlights might go out. We've had it all over the years, haven't we? So I think that's it. I think it's that constant 
nervous energy and the adrenaline you get from if Norwich score, am I going to identify the scorer quickly enough? Am I going to make a mistake? Am I going to get this right? Am I going to do this? If Norwich score a great goal, am I going to do it justice? Or am I going to be writing something down when something happens and I'm going to miss it? It's that you're living on your nerves constantly. But How do you keep your emotions in check? Or are you kind of like past all that now? <laughs> <laughs> Some of the goals, I don't think you do. I think it's, yeah, I think maybe with experience you do, I do a little bit more that, than I used to. Um, but I think the good thing is being on local radio, you know that everyone who's listening pretty much is a Norwich City fan. I mean, you'd, you'd have to be quite strange to listen to Radio Norfolk's <laughs> coverage of every Norwich game if you weren't. So I think you can go, I think the, the comparison I always make is if you're watching the World Cup in the summer and you've got, in, in the back in the days, Barry Davis or John Watson, if they're commentating on an England game, they would do that differently to if they were commentating on Italy against Argentina yeah. because they know that the... Yeah, the audience that's watching are all pretty much wanting one team to win. And I think it doesn't mean you have to support that team or pretend everything they do is brilliant, but I think you tend to tell the story from very much a yellow and green point of view. And, you know, if if Norwich go a goal down, it can it's perfectly all right to say that's a big blow early on in the game, whereas you might not if you if you were doing it for national radio. We saw that from your counterpart at Radio Suffolk with the famous Tim Closer header. Is it is a chap that you know, isn't it? It's Brenner. Brenner. Yeah, Brenner Woolley. Yeah, I felt I felt quite sorry for him over that because he's, he's a lovely not. bloke. Brenner. I did. I think <laughs> it's your ringtone because he <laughs> he did such a good job of I think of it, um, we don't very often like to consider ourselves um, and see things from the point of view of Ipswich supporters, but I thought what he did was a brilliant piece of local radio commentary because what he said captured the mood perfectly from what everybody who was listening to it in Suffolk that's exactly how they would have been feeling at the time and he captured it perfectly I'm sure if the boot had been on the other foot I'm sure it would have been our commentary probably would have been on everyone's ringtone in in Ipswich (laughs) you know in in, and maybe it'll happen in the future Uh, I don't know I hope it doesn't but um, since Fortunately, since social media came in and all of these clips became more widely available online, we haven't actually lost trips, which, but it's it's bound to happen at some Don't point. And I'm, dre- I'm dreading the day that it does. But yeah, I think I felt sorry for him because what he did was a very good job of local radio football commentary, telling the story from the point of view of the team that he's commentating on. But when you're when you're the other team, certainly, and when you're coming to it from a different uh, point of view and not seeing it in context, I can I can see why it does sound a bit bit strange. So when you do your iconic moments, and there have been you know several that we listen to again, and most Norwich fans can do word for word. <laughs> we'll talk on, about then. them in a minute. <laughs> yeah, we might do it in a minute. But but in, in order to nail that moment, is that something that just happens organically? Or have you got a few, I don't want to ruin the illusion, but have you got a few, right, if this happens, I'm going to say this. this no, line. I, don't, I don't think you can. Um, because this, the, it's so random football. You can't you can't prepare for every eventuality, and I think you you just don't know what's going to happen. So I I certainly don't sit there and prepare if Pookie scores, I'm going to say this, or if you know Franchich scores, I'm going to say this. Because I think you can end up tying yourself up in knots, and it can sound a little bit prepared. And the, the I think the great joy of commentary is responding to the the moment that's in front of you. All of the whatever piece of radio commentary it is that you've you've most enjoyed over the years, whether it be listening to England win the Ashes on Test match special, the, the moments that stand out are the ones that are really really natural, and they don't always get all the detail right straight away. That's the funny thing. You strive to get the detail right, but I think you, you think about England winning the Cricket World Cup last year and and how that. That that moment with, with uh, the Jonathan Agnew commentary on Test Match Special has gone down in history because it's just lots of people shouting and that's all it is. But that captures the it's moment. Warm, isn't yeah, it? it is, and I think yeah. that's what you've you've got to try and you've got to try and keep that essence of I am 
genuinely giving you a reaction to what's happening but without it becoming too shouty so that people who are listening at home don't go, what's happening? What's happening? You're just shouting. It's, it's, it's a balance. There's no better example of you nailing that than the Derby County <laughs> goal. Can you remember the words that you no, use? Sorry, no, you can't, have I you ever listened to it back? Yeah, I have listened to it back. I've been forced to listen to it back a lot. And I think it, it's another one of those things where as a piece of radio commentary, it's probably not very good. Because when you're I no, I think I, I, I think I would I would like to think if it happened again now, I would do it very differently. Because I think if you're listening at home and you haven't got the benefit of seeing what's in front of you, you probably it's not clear what's happened. Chance what's on the line? <laughs> it's going to go in. It's going to go in. Simeon Jackson completes his hat trick in stoppage time. There you go. It's utter it. chaos at Carrow Road. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've heard it a few times. That from Neil? Did Neil? No, no, it? no. That's that's from me just <laughs> playing it. That was over and over again. Yeah. Watching. So I think there's a there is a balance to be struck, and I think that was probably too far one way and I'd like to think that if if Norwich get promoted like that this season it would be slightly when? more measured <laughs> if, yeah in that sort of style yeah, yeah. there's um I'd like to think it would be a bit more measured but because yeah it's losing it like that is it, it, at the time it feels perfectly natural but I think when you come back to it years later you just feel a bit silly when you hear it when well, you're hearing I'm, it out of context I'm so grateful for it because I wasn't there but you felt you were probably. I felt like I was. <laughs> I wasn't there. I was playing football at the time and I'd come back into the changing rooms and we'd stuck the radio on, you know, just to try and to see how, how Norwich were finishing up. And, and I feel like I was there and I don't feel like I've missed out because that piece of commentary was so good. So I, I, I'm just grateful well, for I'm, it. It's nice of you to say, but yeah. yeah, it's not one that's a comfortable listen. Let's put it that way. But everyone's their own worst critic, aren't they? So, you know, fan, yeah. fans loved it. Well, that's nice to know. It's nice to hear. But yeah, I think I, whenever it comes on again, and we, it does get played on the radio from time to time, and I'm sure it will be, you know, no matter what happens, I'm sure it will be. But it's not one that I'm the most comfortable listening to. What but, are you the most comfortable listening to back? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's strange. It's, again, it's a strange job because you always, your head is all, always full of the things that you wish you'd said. It's a bit... But no one knows what no, you they had don't. planned to say. I, I do it again being a football commentator is a bit like constantly having an argument with somebody in that you know that feeling when like two days later you think oh I should have said that <laughs> yeah and that's exactly what being a football commentator is like because you it's a couple of days later or like two o'clock in the morning you wake up and you think oh I didn't I've just thought of a brilliant line it just yeah. wasn't there at the moment yeah. so yeah there's there's a few that it's I, I don't mind listening back to and, and you think oh that was I captured that moment perfectly you know the, I think the second goal at Wembley was just about right in terms of the, the balance of it but um, yeah that you just have to, in the end, you just have to learn to not think about it too much and not beat yourself up too much because there, there, are, there are thousands of things you could have said, but ultimately you've only got, you'll never get that moment again. You've only got what you did say. And the listeners don't know what you could have said. No, they know exactly. what you said. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. They, they know what's there. How, um, how different or even maybe difficult has it been this season being in a stadium without fans? Has that given added pressure? Because obviously I guess the, the players can probably hear your commentary. You know, they know if they're having a mayor. <laughs> I hope not. Um, yeah, I, I've not, I, I'll be honest, I've struggled with it in that I haven't enjoyed football anywhere near as much as I used to since Project Restart because of, yes, we've still got the match and I'm lucky I still get to go into grounds and I still get to commentate on a football match, but I don't get to do any of the things that are, that really make football fun. It's a bit like we touched on, you know, stopping at service stations earlier and having that, that match day experience where you actually, before a game, you get to bump into lots of lovely fans that you speak to a lot or other people in the press room you, you, who become good friends because you're, you're, you're sharing the journey along the way. And we're all sort of kept apart at the moment for obvious reasons, but it, it does make it all feel 
very soulless and I'm, the players have still got a job to do and they I think they're a bit more used to it now and they're, they're doing it really well but when when Mario Vrancic gets a late winner at Carrow Road or when Marco Stiefman scores against Swansea with five minutes to go in a big game those are moments that should come with the, the great stories of celebrations and that the limbs in the Barclay end and we just haven't got those this season and I think that does detract from it that means that it doesn't feel quite as special as it should at but the moment but surely that makes your commentary even more important because you're representing you're the voice for, for the fans that, that aren't there and able to witness it so so if anything that's even more important this season I think it's probably done wonders for our listening figures which <laughs> <laughs> because people can't you know when Norwich are at home there's 27,000 people who probably don't listen to the commentary because they're here and, and they're, they're listening in and, and maybe watching it on, on iPhone as well so so there's that the trouble is uh, the moments when Norwich score a goal you tend to try and ride the crowd noise so it makes you go louder and, yeah, and shout but that, yeah. there's no crowd noise to ride at the moment so if you're not careful no matter how, how good a goal is no matter no matter how careful you are you you can sound just like a man standing next to a field shouting yeah. because you haven't got the rest of the sounds like you're <laughs> at Yarmouth again and, and watching <laughs> it does baseball, it's yeah. exactly like that and it it doesn't feel right to give it the give it the big in if you like as much as you would do when there's a crowd there because there's nothing to to really lift the noise behind you and you, I think I hope and I don't know but I hope when this is all over that football will appreciate its supporters and what what the crowd brings to a game, the atmosphere and everything that goes around it, so much more than it, than it has done in the past. Because I'm really missing it. I don't think we will ever take for granted a drab nil-nil. She's <laughs> not ever again. I'll just be thankful that we yeah. can all sit in there and, and watch it. I, I mean, as daft as you feel doing your commentary, I'm announcing team sheets to an empty stadium. I feel like <laughs> an absolute wally. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get all excited. Hey, who's, so, so we've got goal music, haven't we? We have got goal music. So yeah. who's that for? Who is that for? That's just for, for, for me and Steve Trivet, who just love Samba de Janeiro and just want to lift, lift the mood of anyone in sort of the local houses. And, and so the players can hear that, presumably. They can hear they? that. So that, for, and I don't know whether they usually can, but they can hear everything that you're, they certainly can hear everything you're saying over the public yeah. address. And so that's, that's, that's strange, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't want to heat the pressure on you even more. You were saying earlier about getting detail right and checking <laughs> things, but we have the TV on in the, in the PA room. And basically, it's right. Don't announce the, the score until Chris has confirmed it on the oh, radio. Okay. <laughs> so, if I ever announce the wrong score at the stadium, I'm just. There's, um, there are some games. So, a good example would be, say, a corner's come in and a crowd of players have gone for it and the ball's gone in. Where I'm, this, uh, what you've said has just worried me because I'm often waiting to hear what is announced over the public address. Right. Ah, so we've got this. <laughs> we'll, we'll just get a, we'll get a WhatsApp going. What do you yeah. reckon? Yeah. So at some point, one of us has got to make the call because oh, I will suddenly, I will sometimes say oh, a, try not to say who scored because i'm not sure and then you're sort of waiting it tends to happen more at away grounds but you tend to waiting for someone to, to say it over the public address but if we're waiting for each other it's, no one's ever going to know who we've scored. just identified a major problem <laughs> <laughs> oh no obviously last season didn't really go to plan for norwich but we did get a lot of compliments over the style of play what what do you make of that 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 was interesting wasn't it how um you you tend to when you go around the country, you come up against different people from different radio stations or national radio stations or national newspapers who've sometimes got a very different opinion on Norwich City than you've got from watching them every week. And I always find that really interesting to talk to other people because sometimes you can just be a little bit too close to it and you want your team to win so much that you, you lose sight of the bigger picture sometimes. And it, it's always interesting talking to particularly national journalists or it, we're lucky in BBC Local Radio, there's always somebody who's there to cover the other team and what they think about Norwich. You always think, 
oh yeah, actually, we are all right. <laughs> I feel a bit better now about about what you said. So yeah, that that, that is an, always an interesting little conversation to be had about what what people are not as close to it or think about Norwich. Are we quite a popular second team, or, or has everyone got a bit of a soft spot for Norwich, or am I just biased? Yeah. I'd like to think so. Maybe they're just nice when I'm yeah, around. Okay. But yeah, most most. Um, well, the, the thing that we get most is what a long way away it is. Everyone says Norwich. that, don't they? <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> and I always think my response to that is always, well, you should try doing every away game because they're all a long way from us. So, yeah, you, you do get the comment of, of how far away you are from everything. Um, but I think people tend to, in, most people say they enjoy their trips to Carrow Road. I haven't had too many people say, oh, I really hate going there. But I, I don't know whether maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe we need to be a more intimidating place to come. Well, people maybe used to like nice. going out on Prince of Wales Road, didn't they, before things started to shut? You know, <laughs> that was part of the, the away day trip, wasn't oh, I it? I think Norwich, I bet it would be a brilliant away day. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's right in, in the mix of the city and, and you know, plenty to do, pl things to do, places mm. to stay and... Yeah, I think it would be a great away day, but obviously that's not something that we ever have to do as an away no, day. No, you never get the chance to experience your, your own ground away from home, do you? I make like... myself sound like a right football striker, <laughs> yeah. Away day, mate, yeah, nice one. But obviously relationships are, are key with the job that you do. Um, I just want to know, how does it feel when a manager gets sacked or leaves? Obviously you said you got on well with Paul Lambert, he then left to join Villa and then Chris Hutton came in. With players, I guess it's a case of like if you're in the starting eleven, you don't really want the manager that's playing you every week to leave because you've then got to build the blocks up again with a new boss. Do you feel like that in a strange kind of way? Definitely, I think you do because you can't help but build up some kind of rapport with a, a manager because you're interviewing them before and after every game. So you're speaking to them about 100 times a season, which is more than I speak to most members of my own family and friends. So you you do, even if it is quite a formal professional relationship and what you hear on, on tape is pretty much all that's said because they've got so many interviews to do, you don't, it's not like you spend ages, you know, talking before and after the, 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 the microphone's on, on and off. But um, yeah, I've, I've been lucky really. I've built up a decent rapport with most of the managers so far. I think the, actually the strangest one for me was, was Neil Adams Why? because he'd been my co-commentator for so many years course, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um when i first when i took over from roy for, for the first five years of doing the job i it, it was neil that i was commentating with and i was traveling to all the away games with him and we got to know each other really really well nothing really prepared me for actually this bloke's going to be the manager one yeah. day and then he's still going to be on your program on a saturday but suddenly he's the manager and you've got to interview him maybe after they've lost that was that was the hardest one for me because you can always have a bit of professional distance, whether it's Chris Hutton, Alex Neal, Daniel Fargo, whoever it is. There's been nothing there beforehand, but with Neil Adams, there was, and there still is. And that was... That, did that help? Well, it did in a way, because you knew he he understood that he was going to have to speak to the radio station <laughs> after every game, win or lose. But when they when they did lose a game, you you didn't want to go for him in the way that you might do other managers because you you know everyone the listeners as well Radio Norfolk listeners knew knew the history and it to suddenly be falling out with him after Norwich had lost a game just wouldn't have sounded right so it, it was great in terms of having a professional relationship because he knew what was expected he he got it more than any other manager ever will what we wanted and, and why it was important to hear from the manager after every game but it, it was in some ways it was really uncomfortable as well because I had different reasons for wanting him to do well I mean you always want the Norwich manager to do well because it means the club's doing well but it's the first time I'd really personally been invested in a Norwich City manager yeah. it was tricky for Alex Neil wasn't it because he obviously he, um sorry for Neil Adams because he obviously took over when we weren't in a very good position the club then did get relegated but we were seventh in the table when he then got sacked. 
And obviously Alex Neal then came in, got my nails right there, and did get us promoted. Do you think that um, Neil Adams was given enough chance to do what he could have done perhaps that season? I think the fact that the club has kept him involved and that he's always worked here ever since suggests that maybe even they wonder whether he he might have, have, have actually been able to take the club just as Alex Neal did. But... The fact that Alex Neal actually did get Norwich promoted and we had the day at Wembley means that that, that decision has been justified. The, the, the aim that season was to go back up and we had that wonderful day at Wembley. So it's probably not a decision that's come under the scrutiny that it, it would have done if if Alex Neal had not done a good job and, and Norwich had gone down. But I've, I felt so sorry for Neil Adams because I knew how hard he'd worked to get there and I knew that in going back to the League One days, we'd be... Uh, away at Carlisle on a Saturday or Yeovil and one of the reasons for needing to get back after the game was that I knew he needed to be up on Sunday morning coaching in the academy and he was trying to be a, a coach a very good coach and a, and a media person at the same time and there comes a point where actually on a Saturday you need to do one or the other he was juggling uh, yeah he was then, really? yeah, yeah. And, and he really and he, he became Norwich City manager and it I think it happened probably quicker than he ever thought it would but he still got the chance to do it and Actually, we had some really good results under uh, under his managership. Portman Road. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there aren't many managers who who sign off with a was it six one his last home game was that yeah, the last I think game it was five one and six yeah. one so, his last so that's <laughs> there aren't many managers that get sacked to, uh, having won your last two home games five one and six one so I think there'll always be a case of what might have been but the fact that that season ended with Wembley I think we can hopefully all move on from it and just accept that. What happened happened. Where does that Wembley day rank among your greatest days of work? I think uh, of work, it's one of the it's, it's the best, isn't it? You you get to it's the, I'd never seen Norwich play at Wembley before. I was three when they got to the Milk Cup final, so too young to go. We were kind of underdogs, weren't we? I think everyone was back in Middlesbrough, really. Well, we'd had that game with Middlesbrough here, yeah. really frustrating one, where I don't want to say they they employed some underhand tactics, they but it was did. the <laughs> angriest I've ever been. I think at a at a football match, you know, Patrick Bamford and their goalkeeper were all over the place. And, and yeah, I, I think you're right. We were second favourites. Yeah, going into it that. felt and like that, didn't it? And then suddenly... It was just, brilliant, wasn't it? It was our day. It was yeah, it was. And I think because we'd, we'd been through it at Cardiff and the, the playoff final defeat on penalties a few years before, I don't think you... I don't think many enjoyed that day until it had finished or until the final whistle had gone because we knew what it felt, what it would feel like to lose. And maybe actually being at Wembley, uh, I probably didn't take it in as much as I should have done at the time because you were worried that this could all go very wrong today and we're going to have to try and find the right way to go up, isn't it? Absolutely right. So to to be there and to, again, very fortunate position because commentating sort of on the halfway line, it meant that we could turn and we could see that that huge yellow and green army in, in all its glory. But when you're in amongst it, you don't get to see it. So um, looking at it was was absolutely fantastic. I mean, my dad was there, my brother was there, and of course I couldn't sit with them. So there's that kind of thing where you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm not really part of this with the family. But again, you got to commentate at Wembley and Norwich won and actually won very well and very comfortably, which we, we could never have expected. So that that is a day that I will absolutely never forget. Did you make it down onto the pitch afterwards for interviews and things like that? Yes, I did. Rob did a great job on the pitch at full time. Famously. I remember him being with Nathan Redmond, yeah, I think yeah. it was, was it? There we was got, a picture of the two of them together. Well, yes, yeah. yeah, we got a few, a couple of Norwich players let their emotions get the better of them. We, we got a, a couple of words, <laughs> a, a couple of words went out on BBC Radio Norfolk on, a, on an afternoon, a bank holiday Monday afternoon that you wouldn't usually hear, I'd like to think. <laughs> but I think everyone accepted it because it was it meant so much. And yeah, after that, after that, it's, it's interesting how much of a, 
of a free-for-all it can be when you, you go down and do the interviews and everyone's so happy that they want to get involved. I've still, I don't know if I should admit this, but one of the banners they held up that said promote, I can't remember what it says on it now, but it's about promotion. You know, they get those banners at the end. Yeah. One of them I found on the side of the pitch after we've done all the interviews. So I've, that may have stayed with, with me as a memento of the day. Too right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Can I admit that? No, yeah, no, you can. Yeah, it was just left on the pitch after we'd done all the interviews, and I thought, well, if no one else wants it, did you I... take some grass with you while you were there? No, or? I didn't. No, no, no. I didn't. Well, no, great. Yeah, I've, I've fallen foul of groundsmen too many times. <laughs> so yeah, I don't. I don't make a habit of stealing souvenirs from football grounds, but I think. I think that one was all right. Yeah, yeah that was, it was a bit of a one-off. Oh, that, that that excellent, one. thank you. <laughs> so fasting forward to May 2017, the German era begins, and I think it's fair to say not many Norwich fans had heard much about Daniel Farker at the time. What did you know about him? Again, again, I was very grateful for the, the heads up a couple of hours before, because nothing, <laughs> I didn't, didn't know who this bloke was. He, his name had begun to appear as a rumour maybe a day or so before i can't remember exactly but we then started to think all oh, right well, maybe we better take this bloke seriously and, and see if we can find out what we could about him um and yeah it was a real it felt like a real left field appointment it felt like a, a real change of direction for the club and we knew Stuart weber was in and we knew it was going to be different but i don't think any of us had prepared for quite how different it was going to be and then the succession of players that came in that summer you know players like maria vrancic marco stiefman christoph zimmerman and usually as a as a football commentator who by then had done you know 10 years commentating on up and down the, the football leagues I kind of felt like oh, I've got a good sense of who these footballers are I know I know a thing or two about football I can if, I, if someone wants some advice on playing championship manager on the computer football manager I can I know a few players and then suddenly they're plucking all these guys from Germany and you're thinking oh right okay because <laughs> so I think one, one of the problems is we English football fans tend to be quite insular and we don't have a particularly good knowledge of what's going on elsewhere in Europe. So I've, I found it really difficult initially to recognise my franchises from my Steepermans. But now... <laughs> to say them. It, exactly. <laughs> and, and now it seems strange saying it because they are such such familiar figures and such part of the furniture here at Norwich. But there was a time where this all felt so strange and so new and so exciting, such a different direction for the club. Well, Stuart Webber obviously came from Huddersfield, didn't he, where David Wagner at the time was was the head coach. So I guess there was that connection anyway. And then obviously Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. Do you think Daniel Farker, what do you think he makes of being kind of linked among those names? Is it just because they're German? Well, uh, yeah, I um, had a bit of a problem with Jurgen Klopp last year, actually, at Anfield. In oh, that, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's all coming out now. He, um, it was the first first game of the season and uh, in the Premier League and I was doing my post-match interview with Daniel Farker about well actually we'd, we, I think we'd, the thing we were clinging to that night was that we'd won the second half despite being 4-0 down at half time and halfway through the interview I was doing with Daniel Farker Jurgen Klopp came past him and took him away and took him to one side and they started having a conversation in German. Oh, they're both German, they're perfectly allowed to do that. But it's, I was a bit like, excuse me, Jürgen, I'm in the middle of something here, but he's Jürgen Klopp. And at that point, he hadn't won the league, but you still felt you couldn't, yeah. at Anfield, you can't say, kind of, excuse me, Mr yeah. Klopp, I'm in the middle of something here. So This was pre-recorded, this wasn't a live. It wasn't live, were... thankfully. No, okay, the, just... the interviews that you hear after a game are pre-recorded, but only a few minutes before you hear them. So yeah, he, he interrupted Jürgen Klopp. So I've... I've I suppose he's sort of earned the right, hasn't he, since? Well, I, guess so. <laughs> I guess where the similarities between those guys are, obviously, you know, they are German, but there's some serious, serious charisma there yeah. from, from all of them. They must make it, Daniel must be a fantastic interview. Yeah, he is. And, and again, he's, what I like about Daniel Farker and whatever you think about some of the decisions he makes as a manager, I think as a person, he has not changed any way uh, along. The, the Daniel Farker that we spoke to in that first season where people were, 
starting to be a little bit unconvinced and Norwich had only finished 14th in the championship and it felt a bit underwhelming at times. The next season, he took some of the same set of players to the top of the championship. And with some managers, you could imagine they would use that as an opportunity to get a little bit big for their boots and start talking down to you and saying, see, I knew you all doubted me. But he didn't. He was exactly the same Daniel Farker there, same when he was winning the championship, same when they were struggling in the Premier League and the same now. He, he, the way he talks to us and the way he conducts himself, he seems such a consistent person. And I don't know how he does it in the ups and downs of football because not, not many others do. And, and I think that says a lot for him, that he manages to stay fairly on a, on a, on a level and fairly consistent. Have you ever I don't had a manager how... who hasn't treated you well? Or just, <laughs> you're just, you're an annoyance, an obligation after the game? I think, to, let's be honest, I think that's what we are to most managers because they've... The way... But you should be, I guess, because you've got to put them on the spot. Yeah, well, yeah, that's it. I think they, they've got so much to think about probably the last thing they want to do, particularly when they've lost a game, is go and talk about it loads of times to somebody who's never played the game and is just going to question what they were doing. So, yeah, there are times where you know the manager doesn't really want to be speaking to you, but I think they all now accept that it's, it's part of the job. I think there are a few times where, where Glenn Roder wasn't, wasn't particularly... It wasn't particularly nice, but then why should he be? You know, they'd lost the game and I was asking him questions that he, he didn't like. Um, I've had the odd little exchange with... with pretty much all the managers at times where they perhaps haven't liked to question, but most of them understand the situation, understand that they're going to have to talk to you every week. They're going to have to put themselves out there. And as long as you're, as long as you're fair. And as, I think the most important thing is you're actually giving them a chance to explain their decisions. Yeah. You're not there to catch them out. You're there to, we, we have phone-ins and we talk during the game about, you know, why wasn't that substitution made or why was this player starting instead of that player? Actually, the, the opportunity we give them is to put their side of the story and say, well, actually, what you didn't know was that player didn't play because he was injured or he's got this going on in his life. And I think the managers that see it like that as an opportunity to put their side of the story tend to come out of it better than those that see a post-match interview as a battle. Because it, yeah. I'd rather it wasn't and it doesn't have to be like that, certainly. You sort of made me think then, <laughs> you know, given their own side of the story, really weird question, but would you like to see referees do post-match interviews or would you like them to be in the background? I think, I think at times it would be really helpful because when you're, when you're on the radio, you don't, you don't, it's very easy to criticise referees all the time. And I think what would be nice is just to hear a referee come on and say, well, actually, this is what I saw and I made that decision because of this. Then w whether you agree with it or not, at least you've got that side of the story. And I think that's so valuable when you're trying to have a proper debate about something on the radio. Quite often you're second guessing why the referee has made a decision or what the, the linesman has said to him on the earpiece because they're, they're in constant communication and we don't get to hear that. And there are probably good reasons for it. But I think the same... Same with referees, the same with managers, even the same with players to some extent. We're quite often um, just guessing about them, aren't we? We're quite often supposing why they've done what they've done. And it, it's, it would be quite nice if they felt comfortable enough to come in front of the microphones, in front of the camera, and just give an honest assessment of why they've made a decision. We don't have to agree with it, but I think it would make the, the debate so much more interesting if you know that a manager has picked this player because of that, or the referee, this is what he thinks he saw. Or We're even all just human, to explain VAR these days. <laughs> well, don't get into that. well, that's one good thing about not being in the Premier League, isn't it? VAR. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. It's, again, it's my voice that has to tell people that, no, Norwich haven't got a penalty. <laughs> but you loved that, didn't you? I really, really hated it. So what, what was that like? That, that was the Manchester United game, wasn't it, in the Premier League, where they got two penalties from yep. VAR and you were the one bringing the bad news all the I time. I was the one bringing the bad news. And it was really daft because there's a set of protocol that you have to do. You have to say VAR is checking for a penalty and you have to announce the decision as well. 
by the we're not getting any advanced knowledge of this we're literally getting the big screen and i'm reading it off the screen so three quarters of the ground know what's happening and don't need me to announce it. I'm basically announcing it for the upper Barkley. Marcus Rashford's got a ball under his arm and he's put it down on the penalty spot and he's taking three steps back before it comes up on the screen. VAR, it's a penalty. And I'm like, I'm getting it in my head, Dan, you really have to announce this. I'm like, everyone can see it's a penalty. Just to, just to clarify, VAR has awarded a penalty. And then I'll get the pelters as if I've made the decision. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> no, yeah. no that's, that, that, again, that was something that I struggled with a bit last year because you don't know how big to go when Norwich score a goal, especially if it's a, 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 I think there was a, was it against Crystal Palace? Do you remember this one? The start of the year where Todd Campwell scored a goal and everyone thought that looks a bit offside. Oh, yes, that's so, why he didn't celebrate. Yeah, so he didn't celebrate and we were all a bit like, well, Norwich have scored. It might be 1-0. And actually it was a perfectly good yeah, goal. That's and the then, problem, yeah, isn't it? And then when the goal's given, you then think, oh, well, I wish I'd given that a bit of a, a bit more of a, no, a, I, a big I, one I must admit I hate the thing and I never thought I would I thought people before it came in saying oh you know it's it doesn't need to be like this in football there needs to be some amount of error I was like oh you're a dinosaur why wouldn't you yeah. why wouldn't we have this foolproof system that takes that away these multi-million pound errors away and as soon as I saw it in the flesh I was like this is the worst thing that's yeah. ever happened it, to football. it was a real struggle wasn't it at times last year and I think Again, it, we've probably only got ourselves to blame for it because we've spent so long criticising referees and there is that this rivalry has been allowed to build, build up between referees and everybody else that in the end, something that would, would help the referees was always going to come in. And, and maybe the referees, while I don't agree with all the criticism they get, maybe they could have met halfway and could have been a bit more open and explained their decisions a bit more over the years. Maybe that would have helped to see things from a, a referee's point of view. But again, that's another job in football that I wouldn't want to do, be a referee. Mm, and we're still so. adapting to it as well because yeah, it's yeah, still, still relatively right. new. Um, I just want to turn attentions to that title-winning campaign. Obviously, Daniel Farker, his first season in charge, you touched on it earlier, He um, we finished 14th in the table. And that was with some very good players. James Madison was scoring free kicks for fun that season. We had Angus Gunn on loan from Manchester City. Obviously, at the end of the season, Wes Houlihan then left. So we had some notable departures, but then to go on the following season and get promoted as champions, when was it that you saw the kind of shimmers of greatness that was to come, if that makes sense? I think, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting one because the, you're right, that summer, um, I don't mind saying now, you, you just didn't see it coming because Norwich had finished 14th and then sold James Madison and then you knew the first choice keeper wasn't coming back and Wes Houlihan had left and I think Josh Murphy left and Nelson Ollett, the top three scorers all left and you thought... I couldn't get past the thought. I was thinking, hang on, if this was any other championship club, if this was Brentford or Rotherham, and I saw them finish 14th and then lose four of their best players, I'd be thinking, I'd be worried about them yeah, next season. And I was really concerned when that season started. And again, it was players like Timu Puki coming in who you knew a bit about, but was a bit of an unknown. And it didn't start particularly brilliantly, did it? It was a while before Norwich got going. But when they did get going, my goodness, I think it was, again, we come back to late goals. And I think it was the, the home wins over Millwall and Bolton where they, they scored two really late goals at Carrow Road and the celebrations that went with it. You start to get a sense that something special is happening. And I think it was then after Christmas when they went and beat Leeds so comprehensively away from home. That was when you thought, well, this is, this is it now. This is written in the stars. And that, that was a great night as well. Do you think it's the best football we've played since you've watched? I, th I think definitely to, to commentate on. I think one of the problems I had that season, and I talked about earlier on, when you're commentating, you worry about doing goals justice. A lot of the goals that season, they weren't sort of 25-yard pile drivers, were they? They were goals that started at, in sort of the right-back position. Everyone had a touch of the ball, and eventually Timu Puki tapped it in. But because 
when the ball was in the right back position, you didn't know it was going to be a goal. You sort of forgot to count the passes. And it in the end, you, you'd see Buendia score a tap in or Puki score a tap in and you'd say, oh, that was a goal. And then it was only when you saw the replay back the next day, you'd think, well, actually, that was a brilliant goal. And I didn't, I didn't give it enough on the radio. But that was, some of the football they played was just brilliant that season. That was an incredible season, wasn't mm, it? it? Was. Obviously, we did have some very special moments last season, notably beating Man City. But where do you think it didn't quite go our way? I still think the um, when it stopped, I, I still maintain that Norwich had the games in that final month or the games that they hadn't played when, when COVID came in that they could have won. I thought they, they actually had quite a kind run in at Carrow Road. They had Burnley, West Ham, Southampton, Everton. I felt that winning five of those remaining games wasn't beyond the realms. And as we know, that actually would have kept Norwich up. But it seemed to completely take the wind out of their sails. I think that the last few games before the, the lockdown came in, they'd knocked Tottenham out of the FA Cup. They'd beaten Leicester here. They'd actually run Liverpool fairly close. I know we lost the game, but it was only 1-0. I think Grant Hanley played really well in the three games I've just mentioned. And then, of course, was injured when, so when football injuries, came back. Didn't we? And that yeah. was a big thing. And I think they just lost any sort of momentum. And it was a bit like starting again. And as we've known, in, in Daniel Farker's seasons in charge, they've tended to be slow starters in season so having to start again at that point and then the momentum just went against them very quickly and, and there was no pulling it back but you're right I'm glad you mentioned the Man City game because we shouldn't ever forget that I think I remember doing some interviews with fans who were putting the flags out in the Barclay before the game and Norwich had big injury problems before that game and I remember the general consensus was like, if this is 6-0 we'll actually be quite happy because you know at least it won't be as bad as the, the Ipswich 9-0 from all those years ago and we know what could happen today and they were the reigning champions yeah, at the time and, and to, to win the game was just extraordinary and I think I think we said at the time it's one of in terms of a one-off result I don't know that Norwich have, in the circumstances I don't know that Norwich have ever had a better one and I, I would stand by that the context of that I remember <laughs> the day before like you need to watch the press conference and watch this injury news come out and, and you know we had a was, who was it back Tetty and uh, yeah oh it was it Godfrey, did he play? No, or, I no, don't think he was, played. It was even more makeshift than that. Uh, I can't remember now. Yeah, it was Ibrahim Amadou was yes, involved. Wasn't he was he? Yeah, half as well right. with Teddy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and then the, do we have two goalkeepers on the bench to make up the numbers? Yes. That's, <laughs> yeah. how, that's how ridiculous it was. It was like Norwich haven't got enough players. They've got two goalkeepers on the bench and they still managed to win the game. I think oh, yeah. as, as a one-off result, I think you, you'd go a long way to beat that. Now, Chris, we can't let you go before asking you a few quick fire questions that we think the fans will want to hear. So can we start with your scariest manager to interview after a game? <laughs> well, it's, it's easy. That's Glenn Roder, isn't it? Why? Just because you never knew what you were going to get from him. Most managers you knew if Norwich had lost, they were going to be a bit down. If they'd won, they're going to be quite happy. It wasn't quite as simple as that with him. In some ways, he was a really fascinating bloke to talk to because he'd done a lot in football and had some great stories to tell. And when he was talking about his team, there was sort of the, I don't know what happened, sort of red mist came down. And I know okay. there are fans who, who tried to grill him at various AGMs over the years. I must have missed your England tenure, isn't that the, <laughs> the famous it. line? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> He's, um, he, was a, he, he was a fascinating bloke to talk to. But yeah, I, I don't know about Scary, but the, he was the least predictable manager I've ever interviewed. Let's go that way. Very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> so that's managers. On to players. The best player you've ever seen play for Norwich. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, Best player I've ever seen. Well, again, you tend to go back to your your heroes, don't you? And for me, growing up, Dale Gordon was the one. He was the winger that caught caught my eye. I, I've got to have a word for Gunny as well. He yeah. was just the, the 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 solid sort of presence when I was growing up. Um, in recent years, I just I remember looking at James Madison and thinking, 
this guy's something special, James Madison. You're and right there. Yeah, of being grateful that he's now gone on to prove that because <laughs> it would have been a shame if he hadn't. So we've been, we've been so lucky with, with Norwich over the years, haven't we? But yeah, I think it's always... I'm never going to go past Dale Gordon because he's the first one that I really, really caught my imagination. I think me and Dan probably know the answer to this one, but favourite game to commentate on? I'm going to say the 5-1 at Portman Road. Ah, okay, yes. Closely yeah, followed I wanted you to say the 5-1 at Portman Road. I wanted you to say it like that. Yeah, I think that was, again, that that was sli- that was unexpected, I think, because we all turned up worried that Ipswich were going to put a, put a bit of a spanner in the works and it was going to be a painful night. And Never going to happen. No, they won so well. And again, it's one of those nights where you thought, well, Norwich going up here. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's probably my favourite game. It's hilarious because that, that's a game where, like, Vokes and Pacheco, guys yeah. who weren't here for a long time, but they've cemented themselves into, like, folklore. Yeah, Norwich and it, it was a great one to do for the radio because, do you remember, it was Easter weekend and it got moved to a Thursday night. And because it was on Thursday night, it meant that it wasn't on telly. So the, I think one of the reasons I enjoyed that one particularly is because I knew that the only way to follow it was listening to it on the radio. So I, I like to think that we did quite well that night as a radio station. Out of the, We were very fortunate with the scheduling. We used some of your commentary clips from that as well on a match day here. In pre-Ipswich games, like the playoff semi-final, we clip that into some music <laughs> and play that over the top because, it's again, it's brilliant. Love it. Um, next is most underrated player. And then you know what's coming after that. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> Most underrated player. Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I, do you know, I, again, he, he hasn't actually gone on to have the career that I thought he would. But I always thought Johnny Housen never quite got the credit he deserved. I always thought he was a real pleasure to watch playing for Norwich. And he's one of those that I thought, well, he's at least going to go on to have a, a Premier League career, which actually hasn't happened. He's, yeah. he's ended up back in the Championship again. But I, I, he's just a player I always really enjoyed watching. Okay, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought you'd have said Johnny House. Interesting. <laughs> um, overrated player. Oh wow, that's uh, what, who are we going to say for overrated player? Um, or like you had high mm. hopes for, but didn't quite. Well, there's, there's some obvious it. ones in the ones that they spent big money on over the years. You yeah, know, poor guy. We, we can think of Ricky Van Walsall. Yeah. <laughs> but I think again, someone like Stephen Naismith, who you thought it just didn't work for him, and yet. He was a similar sort of transfer fee to Van Wolfswinkel, but he had actually done it in the Premier League and that felt like a really significant signing. It is, yeah. But it, it just didn't really work for him. I suppose, actually, going back to underrated, I suppose the ultimate answer to that would be Harry Kane, wouldn't it? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I've just thought, because there's no, we saw him play yeah. for Norwich and there's no way that any of us could have predicted what would happen. Wasn't so, he yeah. injured mainly yeah. during his yeah. time here? Yeah, but yeah. I think because even, even so, I, I don't think any of us watched him play for Norwich and thought... We weren't right about him, let's yeah. be honest. So that, that's the only answer to underrated The player. one that got away. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, and finally, what's the most bizarre moment you've commentated on? Um, it's going to be either thunderstorms or it's going to be uh, doing the game here against Derby uh, a couple of seasons ago when I was commentating with Darren Eady and the floodlights went yes, out. Yes, I was here. <laughs> well, and you, yeah. Again, I've, I've been left with a football match to compensate on with no actual football taking place. Those are always the slightly nervous the moments. Was, it wasn't actually that dark. No. Obviously, the floodlights went off, but you could still see what was going yeah. on. But yeah, And it was the fact it that it work. happened right at the moment that Timu Puki scored. It was, yes. all, it was spooky. As, he, as the ball hit the back of the net, one of the floodlights went out, and it took a little while to work out what, what had happened. So, we, we, yeah, it's, it's never dull with Norwich. And I, we must mention Spud being the fourth official as well, oh, yeah, course, <laughs> which yeah. was another great moment, again, which we I think Darren Eady was with us for that one as well, that you just can't, you could not have prepared for and you can't have imagined ever seeing. And as you say, it is never dull being a Norwich fan, but what does Norwich City mean to you and why is it so special? I think it, it goes back to 
dominating so many aspects of, of my life, really. My working life, my family life, still now when I talk to my dad, if it's not the first thing we talk about, <laughs> it's the second thing. It's just something that I've... And again, growing up with my, my grandparents, who I used to come to games with, when you're, when, when you're growing up, you actually haven't got that much in common with your grandparents, have you? But football is always that thing. We're all Norwich City fans, and I think that's what it is. It's that sense of community within your family, within other, other great friends that I've made that I wouldn't have known if it wasn't for Norwich City. People that you wouldn't have come across in any other walk of life, but you're all together on a match day. And I think I'm appreciating it more now than I ever have done while we can't see them. It's that, it's that sense of Carrow Road community that you get. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing that I'm appreciating more now than I ever have. Hear, hear. Chris Gorham, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the All In Yellow podcast. Thank you for joining us. Great but, insight. It Chris, was great amazing. to get you, you know, you've given us so many memories over the years. So thank you. <laughs> yes. And long way it continues. Yes, Thanks, absolutely. Dan. And we'll have to, we need to come up with a system for who, who gets we first do. call on a goal scorer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. Thank you. Thank you. So that was the latest edition of the All In Yellow podcast. And Chris Gorham is normally used to asking the questions, so it was a bit different for him there to be asked them. And it was interesting hearing all his insight, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's great to hear what an away day is like for him. I'm disappointed in his takeaway uh, <laughs> intake nowadays. It's not so glamorous, is it? No, not so much. And and broadcasting from the side of the Acle Strait was a bit of an eye-opener <laughs> as well. So if you enjoyed that podcast as much as we did, make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Or you can subscribe on the Norwich City YouTube channel if you prefer your podcast in video form. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>